you're not going to have substantial change unless you're educated. You educate yourself. And when my team sat me down for two hours and told me everything that I was doing that was hurtful and demeaning, um, I had to stop and think, well, why? You know, why am I, why am I being hurtful to me? Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Miss Val to the podcast. Valerie Condos Field, known in the world of athletics as Miss Val, is the recently retired head coach of the UCLA gymnastics team, a position she held for 29 years. During her tenure, Miss Val earned seven NCAA championships, was inducted into the UCLA Athletic Hall of Fame, and was voted the Pac 12 Coach of the Century. She claims that her most fun stat is that she never did gymnastics. She was a professional ballerina before coming to UCLA in 1982 as the UCLA gymnastics dance coach and choreographer. You can learn all about how a dancer choreographer became one of the most winningest coaches in collegiate athletics in her book entitled Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. You can also learn how she figured out how to be an effective head coach by watching her TED Talk, which has over 3 million views. And ask the question, is all winning success? Just a quick disclaimer before we hop into the episode. This was originally a conversation I did just in preparation for my TEDx talk, and I wasn't sure that I would turn it into a podcast episode. Because of that, it has a more conversational tone, and you might hear me typing, taking notes in the background at certain times. I did my best to clean up the audio and edit it the best I could. Also, Miss Val and I had been talking for a little while before I hit record, and so we kind of hop in at an awkward place, but to give you a little context, We had just been talking about how training in the X's and O's is often really overrated for coaches. Two quick things before we start this episode. First, if you want to get the podcast notes to this episode or any episode, go to transformsport.org slash podnotes to get a link to download the show notes. You'll then be on my email list and I'll send you a new email every Monday with the latest notes from the new episode. And lastly, In June, I'm launching the Coaches Club course and community. It's an eight-week online cohort course to help coaches get better at teaching and leading. Too many coaches feel frustrated, alone, and stagnant in their coaching. This cohort course will connect you with other like-minded coaches that want to grow too. It consists of eight weekly masterclasses with the whole cohort, four one-on-one mentorship calls with me, and a lot more. To learn more, go to transformsport.org slash coachesclub or email me at luke at transformsport.org. And to reserve your spot in the cohort, schedule a call with me today. You can find the links in the show details. And now let's get to my conversation with Miss Val. I'm confident this conversation will help you get better at teaching and leading. Enjoy the episode. As, as I have proven, you don't have to be, pro- if you're going to if you're going to be leading the program, you don't have to be prolific in the X's and O's, right? Uh, yeah. So like somebody asked me the other day if I would ever coach again. And I said, I'd, I'd coach another sport because I would be interested to see if I could have, if I could be successful, not knowing like basketball. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know man to man versus zone. I don't get it. Yeah. I can't see. Um, even though my mentor was John Wooden. <laughs> I um, but to be able to say, okay, I'm going to lay the foundation. I'm, I'm going to lay the, the moral foundation of our team and our program. I'm going to set the non-negotiables mm-hmm. and what this looks like. And I'm going to hire really good people that do know the essence in us. Yeah. And I'll look at the process. But, you know, right now it's okay if I don't know everything. Yeah, yeah. And that's, gosh, there's so many, so many directions my mind is going. So I, one of the people that I, interviewed um his name's nate baldwin and he was a youth sport he was worked in the parks and rec department in appleton wisconsin for like the last three or four years and he came in and he just wanted to to change the youth sports culture in this community and the first year he was there he had to recruit over 30 um, youth soccer coaches for their program 
And that was pretty typical. Like, I mean, that was like 25 plus percent turnover of coaches each year. And he, he gets in, he recruits the coaches and the first year he mandates a three hour training for every coach in the program. Like you have to come to this three hour training and, and I'm going to train you and how to coach and how to give kids great experience. Well, the combination of philosophy and really practical stuff. And he was really intentional about like, Hey, I don't care if you know the X's and O's, I'll give you the X's and O's to teach kids. Here's all the other stuff that you actually need. And the next year he only had to recruit eight new coaches. It went from wow. 30 to eight in one year, just because you were like, and, and most of the coaches reported like that training was really significant in their experience and in their athletes experience. And so like you said, I, I think there's this misconception that if we require coaches to be trained, we're not going to be able to get enough coaches. But I think that maybe, maybe there are some coaches that won't do it if we require it, but one, those probably aren't who we want coaching. And two, right. People want their kids in sports so badly that someone is going to do it. Like right. they can't imagine their kids not being in sport. If you look at it, that time commitment is currency. Mm -hmm. And sure you feel as a coach, you only have so much currency with your athletes. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to spend half an hour giving them education and something like this, because that's going to take away with how many free throws they can be practicing. Yeah. You know? um, however, as you know, and there's this coach that you just talked about, the currency of those three hours pays itself off in dividends. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The investment in training coaches, one, it pays for itself in, in, in all of the non-financial ways of, of impact. But I mean, I would totally argue too, like financially too, that's right. Like, kids have better experience. They're going to stay in the sport. Like a lot of these youth sports programs, which the money infiltrating it is a whole nother ball game. But like, it's like, Hey, actually, if you spent money making sure your coaches were great, you right. would have way less turnover with your athletes. You right. actually have kids flocking to your program. Parents won't right. leave your program because they're going to have awesome experiences. They're going to love their coach and they're going to stay. They're going to keep playing. Right. Yeah. And in sport now, not just gymnastics, um, so many coaches are so fearful of holding students accountable. Yeah. And the slightest thing is going to get you turned into safe sport. Um, yeah. And that education of where that line is, the difference between accountability and abuse, yeah. verbally, you know, um, and, and be, to be able to, like you said, it's going to save you money in the long run because to educate your, your coaches on the front end is going to, A, keep them around, B, keep you from having a lawsuit on your hands, which is happening all over the place now. Um, and educating, like I told somebody the other day, I said, if I had a gym, I would have three meetings a year with every single coaching person in my gym, every staff member and the parents. Mm -hmm. And I would bring in a sports psychologist for one meeting. I would bring in a nutritionist for the other, for the next meeting. And then I don't remember what the third one was, but it was just, everybody's got to be on the same page as far as the education. So that when, and with a sports psychologist to talk about holding children accountable, teaching them, I mean, that's yeah. what a coach does, but what is the, what crosses the line into verbal, mental, or physical abuse? And so when that little Susie comes home and says, cries, my coach abused me because they, they called me a name or they were mean to me. Okay, was that really abuse? You know, if they called you a name, maybe. Well, what was the name? You know, and it, it ju it'll just say education, education, education. I can't say it enough. <laughs> yes. It's going to everybody's butts. Just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was actually one of my questions and you just kind of hit, hit on it. I heard you say, um, that we need to teach coaches how to like hold kids account accountable and what's the line between accountability and abuse or damaging, damaging the kids that you're coaching. What are, if you had to say like, here are the three to five categories that every coach, every sport, every level, they need to be educated in these things or know how to do these things. 
to give kids a great experience, what would they be? Um, just off the top of my head, thinking about it, um, I would definitely um, just coaches need to be educated in how children take in information and process information at different stages of their lives. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like so often club coaches will coach a 14 or 15 year old the same way they will a seven or eight year old. You know, the coach has their way of coaching, whether they're a yeller or whether they're, you know, they overanalyze stuff or whatever, but they coach the same way versus um, I feel that they're, I know that the children learn differently at different ages at different times in their lives. And um, so that's one thing. The second thing is the education for children and their parents on what's happening to your child in, internally. And so that is from a nutritional standpoint and from a sleep standpoint and from a... Um, and from anything that disrupts those things, such as like the hot topic these days is how do I prevent my child from being a phone addict, a, a social media addict? And well, it's the same way that, you know, you don't just, you don't just let them go to the refrigerator and stock it with all sorts of anything and expect them to make good choices right? You put, you don't give them a loaded gun. You don't. And with social media is you don't give them a phone and just turn a blind eye. You need to, um, we need to, we need to give our children the tools and that through education to want to make better decisions. And so why do you want to eat this instead of this? Because you know what? You know that, like, remember, you know, in, in like an hour and a half into your game, you're gassed. Okay, if you eat that, you're going to be able to get through the workout. Oh, okay, well, same thing with sleep. Okay, so if you'll, you're, you're, you're cranky, you're bitchy, you're moaning, you're, you're tired, because you're not getting quality sleep. Okay, turn this off. I mean, my athletes would sleep with it on their chest, which is horrible. This, this is off. not a lie. I... This school year, I've had I've had three plus kids already in October that they've come into my classroom. I've been like, "Man, you look tired. What time did you go to bed last night?" And they'll either tell me they stayed up all night, and when I ask them what they were doing, they say they were just on their phone. Or one of them was like, "I woke up at two a.m." I was like, "Well, what'd you do?" I got on my phone, couldn't go back to sleep. I was like, "What?" Right. It, it did blow, I'm like, and I try to, I'm literally telling you, like, you've got to get eight hours of sleep. Like, do it. It'll change your life. It will literally change your life if you just sleep. And one of them has, like, kind of started to sleep a little more. And I've noticed, like, hey, you look like you got some sleep. He's like, yeah, I feel kind of different. It's like, <laughs> I told you, like, it will change your life. Stop. Like, and, but, like, to your point, we've got to equip kids with the knowledge, one, about that. And then, two, parents have got to know, like, hey, like, don't let your kids sleep with their phone in their room. Like they're and the behavior. Yes. And their brains literally are not developed enough to make a great decision about their sleep habits and when to put their phone away. Like, yes. So I, I totally agree with everything you were so saying there. It's a very simple discussion with the education. Like when I go talk to college kids and I go and I, we'll have that same conversation about this and I'll say, um, I say, okay, just so for sleep, this is not Miss Val talking to you. This is the research. The reason you need eight hours of sleep is because it takes your body four hours to recover and replenish, and your mind does not start using the energy to replenish until the body has. So the first four hours is for your body. The second four hours is for your mind. So if you're only getting six hours of sleep, you're cutting your brain short. And you're expecting to pay attention in class. You're expecting to play well. You're expecting to pay attention to your coach. You're expecting to show up with energy. You can't. You're literally brain dead because you haven't given yourself the proper amount of sleep. Okay, so how am I going to do that? Well, you're not going to do it if this is by your bedside because it's an, it's an addiction. This is cocaine. Okay, 
So you got to put it somewhere in the bathroom where you can't just reach over and get it. It's, and, and as our sports psychologists always tell our girls, the phone's not attached to you. You're attached to the phone. It's your choice. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, for sure. And, and kids need to be, they need to be taught these things. A lot of them just haven't been taught these things. They haven't had these conversations. So I think that's really powerful. Um, is there anything else that you would add to that? I know you said we need to like educate coaches as far as how children process information at the different stages. And then, you know, coaches being able to help kids and parents understand those different things that are happening internally. Are there other things you know, I mean, every coach needs to know how to do this or understand this part of sports and athletes. I think every coach needs to a sit down and have some quiet time and, and discern what your why is. Why do you want to coach? Because I think a lot of coaches coach from their egos and it's this platform of big men on campus and they can just bully and boss kids around and it, they get high off of that ego of, out of that, off that platform, off, out of the, um, being in the spotlight. But why do you really, really, really want to coach? And some coaches, a lot of coaches will say, I just love the game. I love the game. But if that's the only re reason why you're coaching, then the athletes whom you're coaching are commodities. They're just pieces of chest for you, chess for you. Um, and so think about the, the amazing, amazing things that come from sport. And figure out your why and then figure out your how. How are you going to communicate these things and help these young men and women that are under your care literally become superheroes through their sport? What does that look like? Because a component of that also is um, making their community better, making their school better, making their, you know, being that role model, that superhero that literally makes Fayetteville High School this like kryptonite planet that is is that the right word is kryptonite the right word uh i don't know but <laughs> I, I get what you're saying like, um, um and so it's it's figuring out your why then figuring out your how mm, yeah and we just need to shift our culture of sport from we got to figure out how to win because when winning translates to money we have to shift from that to every single thing that these young boys and girls learn on this in the field or in the gym are things that they're not learning in the classroom. And it is a masterclass in life lessons of just how to handle disappointment, how to be resilient, how to have courage, how to have courage in the face of quote unquote failure. Um, none of those things you learn sitting in a classroom and now they're not even sitting in classrooms. They're sitting in there, you know? Um, so nothing can take the place of sport, not even online gaming, <laughs> video games. Um, and I've had parents, you know, one of the questions I'm doing this whole discussion this week on social media. And one of the questions that came in from a parent is how do I limit my children's screen time without being the, the bad guy? And it's like, mm. Well, you don't give your child the keys to a car and say, go figure out how to drive. Like I said, you don't give them a loaded gun and say, don't kill yourself or somebody else <clears throat> for education. And, and parents need to, <clears throat> need to be educated. This is like their playbook right here. You got to be educated on this. You got you to realize that you can set up screen times where the screen will shut off. You can limit what they're able to see in this. You can do all that as parents. Um, it takes effort. Um, but if you're asking how to not be the big bad wolf, that's, that's how to do it. Yeah, that's really good. I don't, I don't know if you have, have watched it yet. I know it's been really popular, but the social dilemma, my wife and I watched it a week or so ago and we're having conversations. She's also a teacher. So she's got sixth graders. So she's seen like, the more beginning of a lot of this in kids' lives when they're, and even, man, it's even before sixth grade, many of them are getting phones, but um, yeah, so we were just having conversations around that same thing and in the documentary, um, 
one of the one of the guys that they interviewed even suggested like have the conversation with your kid and and essentially like create a, a time budget for device time. I don't know if you remember this part of the documentary, but he was like, and if you actually just ask your kids, like, hey, what's a reasonable amount of time for you to spend on your phone? They'll probably give you an answer that you agree with. And if they don't, then you can have a conversation. Um, and then all of a sudden they're owning the choice too. Like, you're not really the bad guy. They're the one that said, I should probably only be on it for an hour a day, or right. you know, I should probably turn it off after nine o'clock. Yes, yes, you should, right? And there's, I mean, there's so much there. I think that even just transfers to sports. I'm like, man, when you can just get kids and athletes to say, to, to generate the idea on their own, there's just so right. much power in that. Totally, yeah. When you bring them in on the equation, okay, yeah. Like, and as I, I'll say to kids all the time, and it's, and this is fact, the average male uh, under, like, college and under, spend six hours a day on their phone and the average female spend eight hours a day. So if you're a parent, you can go, okay, do you, as little Susie, is that acceptable? You want to spend? I remember I had um, a freshman class that we were getting ready for finals and they were stressed out, exhausted, just couldn't do anything with gym. So I had the freshman class come in my office and I said, um, you know, I heard the stat that girls are on their phones eight hours a day, um, cumulative. You know, what do you think about that? And they said, gosh, and I hate to admit it, but probably, yeah, that's true. And then I asked them, I said, okay, how would you feel right now today? Because we're studying for finals, papers are due. How would you be feeling right now if a week ago you had just put yourself on a social media vacation and just said, I'm not going to get back on until after finals? And immediately, all the freshmen just spoke up and said, oh my gosh, I'd be so much less stressed. And I was like, why? And they said, well, first of all, when I'm studying, I'll, I would actually be studying better because I wouldn't be checking my phone every time it dings. Second of all, I'll be getting, I would be getting more sleep because I wouldn't be checking my phone in the middle of the night. There, and it's like, it's 100% in your control whether to be less stressed out right now or not. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, wow. That's really good. Yeah. I, did you, did we go off on this tangent or did you want to talk about how? <laughs> um, no. I, so I wanted, I wanted to like talk about coaching and all of these things. Okay. And I also wanted to hear a little bit about your Ted talk experience. This is really good. I want to, I want to keep diving into some of these things. I'm just thinking of the next, the next question I want to ask or where I want to go with it. The funny thing is, I think for about the last 10 minutes, I think you almost verbatim like quoted half of my TED Talk with some of the things you said. Um, seriously, I mean, there was, there were some things in there that are, that are just really similar to the points that I'm, I want to make um, right. in it that I want to share with coaches. Because I think, like you said, that we've got to help, help coaches just understand um, their platform and why they're doing it. And then two, like, okay, here's how you, how you take your why and what it looks like practically. And so that actually is one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, you know, in your talk, you talk about the kind of the come to Jesus moment you had when your players set you down and this journey that it began for you um, when you had to redefine success and it changed your coaching. And so I would love to know, um, First, I would love to know from that meeting, what was that process like for you personally of redefining success? Kind of how did it happen? Like, did you have mentors that guided you? Was it a lot of introspection and reflection? Um, were there books that you read that really helped you get to a place where you're like, okay, now this is actually how I'm defining success now? All of it. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as we've been talking about, you're not going to have substantial change unless you're educated. Mm -hmm. You educate yourself. And when my team sat me down for two hours and told me everything that I was doing that was hurtful and demeaning, um, I had to stop and think, well, why, you know, why am I, why am I being hurtful to me? Mainly because of my sarcasm, which I thought was funny. And they were like, yeah, it's not funny. <laughs> and 
So that was an education for me that just because I think something doesn't mean it's getting translated how I'm hoping it's getting translated. And then second of all, um, I understand very, very clearly that every single thing that we know, we've learned from someone else. And so I started just diving in and devouring um, leadership books and books on how children develop mentally, emotionally, as well as physically. Um, and to this day, I don't read coaching books as much as I read leadership books. And then we had a, a great sports psychologist that I just like used as my personal psychologist. And I said, okay, I just had this meeting. It was really humbling. Um, where do I go from here? And, you know, how do I make a quick, substantial change, like overnight, while understanding that I still have to now relearn everything, relearn a lot of things. And so I had a lot of guidance that way. But I feel like, you know, in any in any situation, I always think of it like a, as a gem, as a stone. It's not just it, like with, it's not just one side or two sided. Like when the student athletes sat me down, it wasn't their side and my side of the story. It's multifaceted. And so when you look at a situation from only one angle, you're not going to get the whole picture. So if I was going to reestablish my why, why was I going to coach and then how I was going to coach, it had to become from a multifaceted perspective of, like you said, the sports psychologist, having the counsel of the student athletes and asking them periodically for feedback, people, you know, whom I really respected and I knew would tell me the truth and not just be a yes person. Um, to this day, as I said, I'm a voracious reader. I just got through teaching a course at UCLA on transformative coaching and leadership, and we studied 10 different coaches but the underlying book that we used was Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. And at the end of the class, when I did the debrief and asked them, you know, what's one thing that they learned from the class? And these are all student athletes. There were fifth-year student athletes in the class. Every one of them said, I was brought up in, in, in sport to think of vulnerability and humility as weaknesses, not as strengths. And just how we, you know, that's education, how we're reframing our minds. And so um, I started doing that after that team meeting. Um, I, every time I hired assistant coaches, I told them, I don't want you to be a yes person. However, and however, I want you to understand, you can tell me anything as long as it is honest and respectful and behind closed doors. Don't ever challenge me in front of the team or in front of other people. And I promise I won't do the same to you. Um, and I mean, I remember one of my assistant coaches, Randy Lang, came in my office one day, closed the door, and he just looked at me and goes, why are you being such a bitch? And I loved it because it was honest, was behind closed doors. He wasn't challenging me in front of anyone. And it was just, he wasn't soft pedaling. You know, he was like throwing the proverbial cold water in my face. So it's like, and I didn't think I was being a bitch, but obviously my, my um, affect, my choices were coming across like I was being a total bitch. I was like, whoa, okay. And I think the important thing, like when my, when I my team sent me down to tell me anything I was doing wrong, I remember very quickly thinking, if I was a strong coach, I would say, well, tough. I'm the head coach, my way or the highway, you don't like it, you can leave. And I remember thinking that for a split second and then going, okay, time out. <laughs> Is my goal to make them miserable? No. Is my goal to, to make them feel belittled and to be hurt by my sarcasm? No. Okay, then you have to change, Valerie. How are you going to do that? Wow. Yeah, wow. There's, there's so many things there. Uh, one, I read Dare to Lead last spring. Incredible book, phenomenal. I wish that every coach would read that. Um, and just to echo what you were just saying and what you said, you talk about with those kids in your class. Which, I, if you're teaching that class again, please enroll me. Um, is 
yeah, there, and this, it's just not sports. It's this whole narrative in our culture that the vulnerability is, is weakness. And that right. if, if you ask for help, you're weak. And if you, if you have issues, if you are unsure of yourself, you're weak and you can't show that and you can't admit it because then you'll be rejected or, or then you'll be seen in a certain way. Um, yeah. And, and I appreciate your honesty and saying like, yeah, in that meeting, in that moment, like that narrative was even playing in your head. Like, Oh, I, I'm weak if I admit these things. Um, but I'll just say, even from my short coaching experience, some of the most powerful experiences that I've had with kids is when I just said like, Hey, I messed up. Like, I'm sorry. Um, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said it. Um, you know, will you forgive me for doing that? Um, kids don't even know how to respond when a, when a coach or authority figure does that. It's, it's one of the, I think one of the most powerful things you could ever do for an athlete is just to apologize to them when you mess up. Um, cause we're like, every coach is going to mess up. You're gonna have a moment when you say something you wish you wouldn't have. Um, but like you said, most coaches have this narrative that, Oh, I can't, I can't go admit that. I'm not strong. Then I don't know what I'm doing. When in fact, your, your players see it just the opposite when you're willing to admit that. I think a very powerful coach is someone who models the behavior that they want to see. Yeah. Their and by you modeling that behavior of how to sincerely apologize without being obsequious, without having to go on forever and without bringing it back, like mm. a true apology comes from your heart, comes from point of empathy and sincerity. Like I'm sincerely apologize. And I sincerely hope that I can accept that you can accept my apology, which means you don't keep bringing it up. You don't keep throwing it in my face and blah, blah, blah. So like with, I did this, I found the same thing. I loved finding reasons to apologize to our team because it didn't model the behavior. And then it was so important not to bring it up even in a joking manner. It's not funny. And that's where the trust comes. So if an athlete came to me and said, Miss Val, I'm so sorry, this, da, 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 and I go, okay, thank you for coming to me. Accept your apology. Your apology. We're going to move on. There were times when I, like, jokingly, I wanted to bring it up to her. And that's what I learned from that two-hour meeting, that err on the side of not being funny and not telling jokes. Because mm-hmm. the majority of the time, they're going to land in the wrong place. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And that kind of segues into the the next question I wanted to ask. So, I mean, you have this, you have this meeting, you go on this journey of, of change and growth and, and being educated. Um, I just would love to know like really practically what were some behaviors that all of a sudden, like you couldn't engage in anymore. You kind of already mentioned humor and sarcasm because of your new definition of success. And then what were these behaviors that all of a sudden you began to engage in because of your new definition of success? And how did that kind of reshape your culture of your program? That's, that's a great question. And the first thing that comes to mind is what you said a little bit ago is I learned that the more I brought the student athletes into finding the solution, the more buy-in they had. And if I could get a team that took ownership of themselves and their teammates. So they're the ones that would, would set, you know, a curfew or they're the ones that would say, you know, we're all going to be in bed with our phones turned off by 11 o'clock. And they're the ones that set the parameters. Then you have far more buy-in than if you're just dictating to them. And so I, from that time of that team meeting, I started asking them more questions and asking them for the input. I remember asking, um, I, I've always had this no gum rule, like no gum ever, ever. Like if you're in class, you're not no gum because you're representing UCLA gymnastics. Probably comes from my dancing days because you'd never be chomping on gum on stage. And I couldn't get them, like to, we're traveling through the airport and I'm hearing snap, snap, pop, pop, pop. And it's like, I do not want to be the gum police, okay? That is so silly. But I'm asking you guys, I told you the reason why I don't think it's okay to be chewing gum. And I'm asking you, so could you guys please set the parameter of 
how I'm going to help you not chew gum in public. And they're the ones that came up with, well, how about every time you have to tell, ask one of us when we're traveling um, to spit out our gum, it's every, the entire team has to do a rope climb. Well, that was a lot more harsh than I would have done anything. It's, it's gum for God's sake. You know, I was like, okay, well, I'm sorry, but one of the next trips, I had to tell six different people to spit out their gum. They had six rope climbs. I'm like, you guys are the ones that set the parameter. Now I'm thinking, well, crap. If they, if any one of them climbs the rope six times today, their shoulders are going to be shot for a month. This is not smart, Valerie. <laughs> like I had to do some control. So I'm like, all right, we're going to spread out the six rope climbs over a week. You have eight days to get them done. All right. We're going to be traveling within those eight days. Please don't tack on more rope climbs. Yeah, no. That, and that's, I, I love that. That's a really, really good example of like you, you held them accountable and you actually just let them generate their own consequence. I think, I think so many coaches would be really uncomfortable with that. Um, but like you said, they, they generated a harsher consequence than you would have even generated. Um, just because you, you asked them. They always did. Hmm. I mean, for decades of me asking our student athletes that and giving them the power, I would almost always have to say, okay, we, before we agree on this, you sure you want to do that much? You sure you want to do that many? You like, that's a lot. Like athletes, that badge of honor, when you ask them something like that, that badge of honor pops out and they're like, yeah. You know, it's like, it's not always the smartest thing to do. Yeah, no. Uh, and I just kind of thought of this. I would love to love to hear if you did any of this. Do, were there any, were there any like creative consequences that either they generated or you generated? I know oftentimes it's like coaches can, like just running your kids or physical, like that's a whole nother topic of like really is the best way to discipline running them or, or doing physical activity. I, I don't think so. But what were some of the creative consequences that either you came up with or they came up with? I, that's a great question. I totally agree with you. And I, the reason why I didn't like the rope climb for the gum is because I don't like using conditioning as a form of punishment. It's just like, you know, you don't want your kids to have to sit there and think that peas, green peas are bad to eat. Um, and so I never would use running or extra conditioning or something like that as a punishment for the team. But when they did things egregious and it was never about, they never got punished for gymnastics. It was always for, um, the cracks in the foundation of our moral code of our moral foundation and I got this from I got this quote-unquote punishment from one of our football uh, coaches that they would have to roll the field and you literally go out there at 5 30 in the morning and it's damp and it's cold and they just lie on the ground and they roll the length of a football field which then they're gonna get up some of them puke whatever but the purpose of that is it's humiliating because there are other sports out there at that hour working out. It's, it is unbelievably annoying to roll a hundred yards. You know, it's cold. You get damp. Um, girls would cry. Um, but it wasn't conditioning because we don't have our athletes roll anything with their conditioning. And second of all, they weren't going to get hurt from it. You know, like, I know that one team had their athletes run the hills when they got in trouble. Well, all their athletes came down with Achilles problems. That was stupid. Um, my most creative, though, team punishment was um, I had them put on their, you say gymnastics track suits. I had them put on their, you put on their black backpack, backpacks because at UCLA, if you're a student athlete, you're called a blue backpack because athletes have the blue backpacks. So I had them put on their blue backpacks and I had them pick up trash along the out campus for an hour with a good attitude. And the purpose of it was, A, your campus is your home. So appreciate it. 
take care of it. B, I wanted students to see student athletes with a servant's heart and humility taking care of their home. And I felt like, you know, whenever we, whenever we're hit with a tremendous amount of humility, it actually, it kind of like sheds our ego and sheds the pompousness and it gets us back to our core. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, th- I think that, that's really powerful, especially, yeah, for so many athletes, their identity is so wrapped up in their sport. And then, I mean, what you did with that, with that consequence was, hey, here's your identity as a gymnast. And now you're actually going to go wear this identity out into public and be a servant in it. Um, right. And, and everyone's just like, what is happening? You know, the, like that's not normal. Um, right. It, it breaks some some norms or stereotypes, which I think is really really powerful. Um, right. Let's. Hmm, wow, I'm trying to think of where to go next from that. There's so many so many things that I'm learning and I want to keep asking you about. So here here's my next question. If 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 you are if you're training a group of coaches any sport and any level on it. I don't know. Um, how, how do you think we can, or how would you help them redefine success and change, like begin to change this narrative of when at all costs, like what is it that you would do? What would you educate them on? And maybe it's a little bit repetitive of what we talked about, but is there anything else that you would add to that? I would, I know it takes time, but I would set a, a definition of success for our team for that season. And then I would take the time to have one-on-one meetings with student athletes. Actually, you can't have one-on-one meetings anymore. You have to have somebody else in the room. And um, help that athlete define what success looks like for them. Because where I got... I had issues every year were, was with the student athletes that weren't competing. And if you're not competing, you're not traveling. So then we get into competition season and they would feel that they had no value to the team. And so if you're setting what success looks like for you um, early on, and, and, and for all the student athletes that came on our team that are walk-ons, I would say, I'm going to be straight up with you. There's not a good chance you're going to compete. We're going to train you to hopefully you will compete. But if you're not in the top eight, you're not going to travel. Okay. It's not personal. Don't take it personally, whatever. Um, and then when they would start getting down on themselves, I'd revisit that and I'd say, why were you brought here? Why are you on the team? And a really good example is that it's Caitlin Ahashi, who went one of our best athletes when she was asked by a reporter, who's the most inspiring person on your team? She said, I know you're going to think it's one of our Olympic gold medalists. It's not, it's Sarah Taubman. And the reporter said, who's Sarah Taubman? And she said, exactly. She's the walk-on that will probably never, ever compete, but is so appreciative of being here. Works as hard, if not harder than everybody else in the gym, that she not only helps me get energized every day, but she reminds me of what a privilege it is to be here. So that was Sarah's gift. So when you're defining, had success, has Sarah Taubman had success at UCLA Gymnastics? Yes. And she's never competed one time, but she's been very, very successful. And so, and I think it's the same with parents. You know, I remember my brother was a rocket scientist and I had no capacity for numbers and math. And my mom, instead of expecting me to be able to bring home the grades like he did, my mom said, let's look at what inspires you. Let's define success for you. Okay. You passed accounting. Yay. Drop it. It doesn't matter that you only got a D. You passed. Let's move on. But if my brother got a D, that'd be like, you know, he slept through class. So helping kids define what success looks like for them. And then as I say in my TED Talk, um, and this is another thing that I learned from that meeting, that team meeting was, it's, it's so much easier to dictate change 
to young people. You have to do this, do it this way, do it my way, and just trust me because I know better than you, just trust me, okay? But that doesn't produce substantial change. All that produces is compliance. So if you want substantial change, if you want those, those athletes that aren't getting any sleep to change, to have substantial change, you have to motivate them to want to change. How do you motivate? The first way you motivate is by being thorough in your explanations and your education of why what they're doing is not in their best interest. Yeah, that's, that's really, really good. Yeah, I think that's huge. And like we talked about earlier, it's like, you can't, you know, as coaches, you've got to make them think it's their idea and, and motivate them, help them see like, this is why you need to do it. This is why it's good for you. It's not, it's not me here wanting to move the pieces in a chess game so that I can win. This is because I actually want you to grow and to be able to achieve, to be your best. And here's these things that you can do that'll help you get there. I just want you to know about them so that you can make the choices. I think that's, yeah, it's so, it's so powerful. Um, the follow-up question, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier with vulnerability and sports and, and Brene Brown's work. And um, I would love to know to, I mean, once you redefine success and your coaching really changed, like what are some ways that you practically created experiences of shared vulnerability with your team or even maybe individually with your athletes? Like how did you, how did you bring vulnerability out as part of your team and your culture? Were there specific things that you would do um, with your whole team or things you would do individually with athletes? I know you mentioned just, apologizing was huge and modeling that are there other ways that you kind of broke that narrative for your team and and help them see like it's okay to be vulnerable here with us i would always ask them what they heard me say and what they felt about it so every single day we would line up before workout and i would we'd go i always like to work backwards so i always say let's start okay this our meets on sunday Okay, this is our goals for the meet are this. Now let's work backwards. It's Tuesday today. So on Friday, we're going to do that. Thursday. So today, this is what we're going to be doing. This is the plan. Um, do you guys have any questions? And because we, create, because we had created a safe space for them to be able to ask questions without being ridiculed or without being put down or without being me jumping all over them for questioning me, or questioning the plan, they had a safe space and they, they would all tell you, as long as you say something respectfully and honestly, uh, you can say anything you want. So um, I would encourage them, you know, if I said, so does anybody have any questions about what we're doing today? And if I saw someone roll their eyes or whatever, I just say, okay, Luke, what's up? Do you not like the plan? Do you think we should do something different? And more times than not, that person would say what's on their mind. And, you know, we went really hard yesterday, Miss Val. Our legs are shot. If we go hard today, I'm worried someone's going to get injured and we're going to be even more worthless tomorrow. And then I would be able to, and, and every single time somebody brought something up, I would never, ever dismiss it because I had so much respect for their courage in speaking up that it would be a response, something like, all right. Okay. Good point. Um, I'm going to go back, talk about it with coaches while you guys warm up and we're going to reconvene right after warm up. And then if it was something like, no, they really needed to do that workout today. You know what the girl brought up, then you revisit it and you, and, and you just empower them that what they said was a value to the team and to explain why we're going to keep doing it this way. And like in that instance, to be able to say, we know your legs are going to be more shot after today, but keep in mind, we're giving you tomorrow off. And, and nine times out of 10, they go, Oh, well, you never told us we're going to give us tomorrow off or something like that. It's like, okay, my bad. I gotcha. Um, so opening, having that open dialogue and open communication. And what I found was if I built trust amongst the team, throughout the majority of the year, the times that I had to 
dictate and say, like, I remember even it's as simple as we're at the airport and I hear they change the gate and they're going to be closing the gate within three minutes. Those times, because I had built the trust for me to be able to say, guys, now get your bags, move gate B12. I'll explain later. Go now. They don't even have to understand why. It's just you've built the trust. Yeah, that's really good. Have you read The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle? Yes. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that as you were talking, that just that first layer of psychological safety. Again, it is yeah. so, so powerful. Just for kids to be able to answer the question, am I safe here? Can, can right. I share something and still belong? Right? Right. That's what, and I mean, as adults, we're no different. Like we don't speak up in a space, in a group, unless right. we know that we're safe and, and right. that what, we, what we're going to say is valued, that it will be heard. Um, Cause I mean, I remember playing on a team as a high schooler where we didn't feel like the coach hurt us. Like we tried, we were like, Hey, this isn't working. Can we change? And it, and it wasn't received. It wasn't received at all. It wasn't heard and it was frustrating. And then so people stopped sharing. Right. And then there's no connection and yeah. teams that aren't connected usually stink. Um, so one of the coaches that we studied in our the class I taught was Bobby Knight and we had Steve Alford, who used to be our head coach at UCLA, played yeah. for about six years. I had him come on the last hour of the class. And it was great to hear him talk about why he chose to play for Bobby Knight for so many years, what he learned playing from Bobby Knight, and the most impactful thing he learned from a human component was how to be able to take information in as a sieve where you, you capture the essence and the important stuff, but all the other junk just drops through versus a sponge where you just take everything in, including how the information is being disseminated to you. And he said, I got really good at understanding that his, his words, his profanity, his volume, that was about him. It wasn't about me. And so he said when he would be screaming at me about something, I could take in the correction of what he wanted me to do differently on the court without taking it personally. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, that, that's crazy to hear a former player of someone like Bobby and I be able to say that. Um, Cause when you read, when you read the, greatest season or the last season, whatever it's called, um, of his book, literally within like the third page, you've got Isaiah Thomas saying, okay, fine. We won a lot at what cost? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and that's, and that's why I, I'm so passionate about this topic is because there's still some narratives in sports and our culture that, that that's okay. That, you know, and, and yes, a guy like Steve Alford was able to really disassociate from the experience. I, I would say like, I mean, psychologically, he's like, all right, I'm blocking everything that I should probably be feeling just so I can get the information and perform. Like some people will learn to adapt to do that. But I mean, at, at what cost to so right. many other kids and athletes of yeah, do, I mean, what that does to you as a person, you're not, you, you're not safe. You don't feel safe in that environment where you're berated and belittled and torn down. And so you have to compensate in a way of like, all right, I'll shut, I'll shut down part of my brain just so I can hear this little piece and, and then go perform. Um, yeah, that psychological safety is, is so, so huge. Um, what are some of the other coaches that you studied in that class? We started off with Phil Knight. No. Um, Phil Knight, he's Nike. Phil Jackson. Yeah. And it, right, I didn't even know the last dance was coming out, so it was perfect. And I had our sports psychologist that had actually been the sports psychologist for the Lakers when Phil was coaching. He was our guest that day. Um, then the very next week, we studied Bobby Knight. And then Pat Summit. And then one week, we studied Belichick and Saban together because they're basically the same person. <laughs> We studied um, uh, Sue Enquist, who was our softball coach, um, who you would love to speak with. Um, we studied Tony Dungy, Coach Wooden, um, uh, myself. They read my book. And then 
not really close. But they had, a, they had a compare and contrast. As we went on, they had a compare and contrast. And one thing that they came up with that was a really great philosophical question was um, Bobby Knight had a tremendous amount of success. Bobby Knight, Saban, Pat Summit, you know, these yellers, these screamers, these. Yeah. Um, and players went to them knowing how they were going to be treated. So it wasn't a surprise. And the acknowledgement that Bobby Knight would not have been successful if society and his administration told him he had to act like John Wooden. And Coach Wooden would not have been successful if he had to be a yeller and a screamer, nor would Tony Junji. I mean, who, who in their right mind would think that all of the zen that Phil Jackson brought to his team would actually work? You know, and so one of the commonalities that that they found in studying all these coaches was you really have to be true to yourself. You have to know who you are. You have to know your how. How are you to disseminate it? And what is the line? Like we know we live in an in an era now, thankfully, where what is that line that a Bobby Knight would have crossed? Because it's one thing to say um, to use profanity in a way that's not personal. It's another thing to attach it to you. Yeah, absolutely. Have you, have you read uh, Getting to Us by Seth Davis? Uh-uh. I think you would really enjoy that book. He, um, he goes through 10 coaches in the book and just tries to answer how, how are these coaches so successful at getting a bunch of me's to us? How do they get their team from a bunch of individuals to a, a cohesive unit? Um, and he, his acronym is PEAK, uh, pers- um, Persistence, Empathy, Authenticity, and oh, I'm blank, the K might be kindness. I can't, I can't remember what it is. Um, but yeah, I was thinking of that when you were talking about, you know, these coaches, like, they wouldn't have been successful unless they were themselves. That authenticity right. is actually a huge piece of coaching and being successful in coaching is, is being authentic and being true to yourself. I think the part that I personally struggle with, <laughs> with in that is like, well, yeah, I get it. Maybe, maybe Bobby Knight was authentically himself, but gosh, it was still so damaging for kids, you know? Yeah. And, and so again, like, where's that line? It's like, no, this is, this is okay. And this is not okay. I think it's, I think the line is drawn particularly when it becomes personal. Mm-hmm. And I write a instance in my book. I had an athlete, it was about gum again. And we're at a, we went to a meet, we did horribly. So I'm pissed off as it is and embarrassed and the whole bit. We're in a locker room and I hear snapping, gum snapping. And I turned to her and I said, spit the gum out of your fucking mouth which I, I regretted as soon as it came out of my mouth. And then later, when I apologized to her, the truth of it was, I wasn't really apologizing for using the F word. I put the F word in the wrong place. I should have said, spit the effing gum out of your mouth, not spit the gum out of your effing mouth. And so I made it personal. And, you know, even when kids came to me and I recruited them, you know, you know, just along the line of profanity and all that. I told them and their parents, I said, you know what? I believe there's a difference between profanity and vulgarity. Vulgarity are just words that we've assigned stuff to that have a range from not that in- obtrusive to, to really, really, really gross, you know? Um, but profanity has to do with profane. God, Jesus, Muhammad, whatever deity... You know, that's never okay. And I told them, I said, you know, if your daughter's going to get upset, if she hears a vulgar word periodically, then this probably isn't the place for her. But please understand, it's not, in my opinion, profanity. I'm not taking God's name in vain. I'm not taking it, so. Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode. And thanks again to Miss Val for coming onto the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or found it valuable, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to the Coaches Club podcast wherever you listen.
and give us a shout out on Twitter at Coaches Club underscore. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-S Club underscore. And finally, if you'd like a free copy of the notes from this episode, go to transformsport.org slash podnotes. That's transformsport.org slash podnotes. Or click the link in the show notes to get a free copy of notes from today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.